If you have a copy of God's Word, please join me in 1 Timothy chapter 6. This is our final uh, message in this series that we began last fall uh, on the, the, the series that we've called God's Blueprint for the Church as we've walked through this precious book. We have seen uh, so many things emerge from the text. Um, we're calling this last study uh, Final Words. These are Paul's final words as he closes out this book. This book has shown us this seasoned apostle, Paul, as a father tenderly exhorting and challenging his son in the faith toward maturity. He's exhorted him to be on the watch against false teachers, to pursue a life of godliness and purity, to establish biblical leadership by training and equipping qualified elders and deacons. We've heard him tell Timothy how to treat various age groups in the church, as well as widows and slaves. He's given us practical challenges on things regarding money and corporate prayer and other areas. And so now as we, as we finish this book, we hear these final two verses, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 20 and 21. He says, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and the contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Before we study these two verses together, let's just open up with a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, as we turn to your word, we look to you to speak to us. We look to you to challenge our hearts. You've shown us so many things as we've walked throughout this book. Lord, I pray that we would take time to reflect and meditate on them. May we carve out some time this week to reread these, this, this precious text and was your spirit uh, a cause to rise up in our hearts some of the, the important challenges that you have for us as individuals, as a church, to hear what you're saying to us? And God, as we, as we wind this down and hear Paul's closing words as he, as he, as he passes the responsibility of leading the church on to Timothy, would you speak to us? Would these words ring true in our own hearts? Would we be, be challenged, encouraged, rebuked if necessary? Would your spirit speak to us? Give us ears to hear, Father. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Paul begins with the simple two words, O Timothy. It's sort of a cry He's calling out. There's, there's uh, some agony here. There's some, there's some deep-seated emotions rising up. He says, oh, Timothy. This is a word that expresses a deep emotion, a heartfelt conviction. Um, there, there's, there's solemnness. There's urgency in this address. The, the word oh there, it's not like, uh, not like when my wife goes grocery shopping and I open up the pantry, I'm like, oh, Oreos. It's not that kind of a oh, it's oh, Timothy, Timothy, my child. It, there's, there's, a, there's almost a, a groan here as Paul has been welling up throughout the whole letter with these, these things, these matters that have pressed heavily upon his heart that have urgently caused his pen to hit the page. 
as he expresses these challenges, these, these challenges, these concerns to his young son in the faith. And he cries out. In fact, as I, as I read that this, this was an emotional interjection, almost like a groan, I immediately thought of, I don't know why, but I immediately thought of childbirth. The, the groan of, of the mother who's in labor, knowing that, that what is going to ensue will be joyful and, and bring blessing. There's, there's agony there as well as joy. And I think that that's wrapped up here in Paul's feelings. There's, there's agony, there's burden, but there's joy and there's hope. And all these things are welling up with him. You know, the Apostle Paul actually uses childbirth language to express his feelings for the people that he ministered to. In one of his other letters, the book of Galatians in chapter 419, he says, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Paul loved his, his people that much, those whom he had discipled and brought to Christ. They, they were like his children, and, and he, fe- he felt like he was going through the emotions and the agonies of childbirth on their behalf. There was that much deep-seated groaning for them. And he has that same heartfelt conviction for Timothy as he closes this letter. He says, oh, my son Timothy. Oh, Timothy. And what does he say? Well, first, the first thing he says is to guard the deposit. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Guard it. You see, Paul had told him way back when, uh, chapter 1 of verse 18, he says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that you may by them wage the good warfare. He had entrusted Timothy with this charge, this apostolic teaching. What we find here in 1 Timothy, and I think it goes broader than that, to the the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He said, "I've, I've passed this on to you. You've been entrusted with this. And now he says, guard it. Hold it close. Hold it tight. Protect it. You've been entrusted with the glorious good news of a Savior who has come for sinful humanity who has died to pay the price for your sins. And it calls everyone everywhere to repent and to follow him. You've been entrusted with this gospel. Now, guard it. Guard it. The the word here is like holding it close. It's the idea of guarding a treasure. Guard the deposit. There's there's banking terminology here. Uh, That word deposit comes from the financial world, world, and it's the idea of depositing some money into a bank and then trusting them to take care of it. If you've got a bank that's got uh, a dubious financial history, maybe they've lost their FDIC insurance or whatever, and and you you, you see that that, that there's all kinds of holes in the way that they care for money, you're not going to want to entrust your resources there. You're going to find someone who's reputable, dependable. And, and that's why Paul is looking to Timothy. You know, I, this just challenges us to remember to be people who are dependable, who are trustworthy, who can be counted on. Paul says, I want you to guard this treasure of the gospel. Whenever I do a wedding and I find out that there's going to be uh, ring bearers, one of my first questions is, are you going to actually give them the rings? And I'm terrified when I hear yes, because as precious as that three, three-year-old little boy is, he is going to lose that thing. 
<laughs> and I'm, I'm like frantically searching around for cracks and crevices. We're pretty good here, but I'm just I'm paranoid that that ring is going to fall and it's going to find the one little crevice in the entire room and disappear for all eternity. You, you, when you have something precious... Uh, to uh, entrust to somebody. You want to make sure that that person's reliable, that you're going to be able to, to um, trust them to hold it close, to guard it. And Paul was passing the baton on to Timothy. He says, I want you to guard what I've entrusted to you. Hold it close, protect it. He said something similar in the next letter he's going to write to him in 2 Timothy. In, um, in 2 Timothy verses, um, chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, Paul says, but I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I've believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. So Paul's saying that God can guard what has been entrusted to him, so he's got confidence in God to guard it. And then he turns to Timothy and he says, follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. He says, I'm confident that Jesus is going to guard us. He's going to keep us safe. And you can read about that in John chapter 10. But he says, now the baton has been passed to you. You have something that you're entrusted with. Guard it closely. This deposit, the gospel, it was not anything that was man-made. It had been received from God. It was not anything that Paul had devised of his own clever intelligence. It wasn't anything that he had, had privately come up with and was now passing it off as, as some religious, um, impressively packaged teaching. This was received from God and had been passed on now to Timothy. And you and I are heirs of this command. We are entrusted with the gospel. We need to guard the gospel, guard the gospel against false teaching, guard the gospel against being distorted and, and mixed and muddled with other things that will take the, the focus off of Jesus Christ. How do we do that? Guarding the gospel is an essential job of the church today. While there's a special burden on those in leadership, the task falls to each and every one of us. Our calling is not to make the message of the gospel somehow more palatable. It's to remain faithful to the truths that we've received. We do that by believing the word of God. Jesus said in John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. We're, we're first and foremost to believe the word. If you're going to guard the deposit, guard the truth of the gospel, you've got to believe the word. If this is just another book to you or some self-help manual, you're not going to guard it with your life, with all that is in you. But if you truly believe that this is from God, inspired by the Spirit of God, you'll be much more apt to guard it. We also need to love the word of God. It's not enough just to believe it, but to love it. The psalmist said in Psalm 119, 97, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Then we take it the next step and we obey it. We believe it, we love it, and we obey the word of God. It shouldn't just be interesting anecdotes to us. It should be received as truth. In truth, it should be obeyed, followed through on, practiced. God calls us to be people who aren't just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. And then we need to proclaim it. 
By guarding the gospel, he doesn't mean keep it to ourselves. He means protect its purity, guard its integrity. But he doesn't mean keeping it to ourself. We've all played sports at different times in our life by, by someone who's a ball hog. Whatever sport you're in, basketball, soccer, whatever, it's no fun to play with a, with a ball hog. That, we're not supposed to be gospel hogs either. We're not supposed to be um, taking this deposit and just holding it close and say, well, well we're, we're just protecting it here. No, no, the idea is you, you protect its integrity and purity, but it needs to be proclaimed and shared. And then in order to do any of those things, we need to study the word of God. Study the word of God. Make ourselves students of the scriptures so that we know what we believe and can share it clearly. We're called by God to be people who guard the deposit, guard the gospel. Timothy had a a difficult command to follow. There were people, even in his very midst, we've seen it over and over and over in this book, people in his very midst who were changing the message. They were adding works in there. They were bringing in materialism and making a focus on material gain through the ministry. And, 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 and so there was this like high calling, urgent calling for Timothy to guard this deposit to guard the message of the gospel. And today we, we face no fewer assaults on the, the truth of the gospel than Timothy did. And it's not just up to the theologians. It's not just up to pastors and elders to guard the deposit. It's, it's a calling for each and every one of us to be faithful to the word of God, the purity of the gospel, through faith alone and Christ alone. First of all, he was to, to guard the deposit. But the second thing he tells Timothy here is to avoid the nonsense, to avoid the nonsense. The idea here is to keep the main thing the main thing. And, I, and his, his wording is kind of self-explanatory in the middle of verse 20. He says, avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by, by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. He uses this phrase to really brush off some of the silliness that was occupying the conversations in the attention of people in Timothy's midst. He says it's irreverent babble. (laughs) It's nonsense. Um, One translation says senseless chatter. These were empty discussions, useless debates, things that distracted from the main thing, from the focus of what was really going on, of what was the highest priority Timothy's highest calling was to proclaim the gospel. He said, things that distract from the message of Christ and the things that I've talked to you about, godliness, lives of holiness. He said, avoid that stuff. The Bible is about Jesus. You know, I grew up in the church and I don't remember hearing that. It may have been said and I just didn't pick up on it, which is totally possible. The Bible's about Jesus through and through. It starts off, the first three chapters are like the biggest highs and the biggest lows you could ever imagine because we start off with the glorious splendor of God's creation and everything is good and he, he makes man and woman in his image and then institutes marriage and everything is, is blissful and paradise and just glory all over the place. God's resplendent glory. And then you get to chapter 3, and you hit the lowest of lows. He's in the midst of God's loving favor and kindness, revealing himself 
to man and, and lovingly creating all things for them to enjoy, you see rebellion and disobedience. Right across the page, they turn their backs on God and the icy tentacles of sin begin to, to wrap its arms around God's good creation. And from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 on, is the message of God saying, I will not abandon you. I will send a Savior who will make this right. You have rebelled against me. You have brought sin into my creation. You are now separated from me eternally. But I am not content to leave things that way. A Redeemer is coming. And everything from that page on begins to point to Jesus and build up to Jesus. And when Jesus comes, he dies upon the cross, paying the debt for that sin that took place so many years before. And all the sins of all those who would trust in him. And, and he rises from the dead and, and defeats the enemy of death, defeats Satan. And he tells us that we're supposed to follow him. The whole story of Scripture is about God coming after us and calling us to follow after him. And when other things take our eyes off of that message, it's easy to go into empty discussions, senseless chatter, and useless debates. There are lots of things in the Christian realm that people talk about that really don't make any difference to the focus of the gospel. You can go to Christian bookstores and you can find books about blood moons and shmidas and, and all kinds of crazy hot topics, who the Antichrist is and when will Jesus return. And, and, and all that stuff can be intriguing. Much of it is not biblical, but it takes our eyes off of Jesus. So often, even, even things that are couched in Christian ease and sold in Christian bookstores and written on Christian blogs and on Christian YouTube channels can take our minds and our eyes off of what the main thing is supposed to be. My brothers and sisters, don't allow senseless chatter, vain, irreverent babblings distract you from the main thing. Thing. Keep the main thing the main thing, the gospel, knowing Jesus and making him known, loving God and loving others. Let the main thing remain the main thing. If you find yourself uh, uh, traveling down roads and, 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 and amassing books that are not drawing you back to the gospel, to Jesus, it's time to set those things aside and get back to who Christ is. And he's not just saying uh, that these, he's not just throwing these things out flippantly. This isn't a hobby horse of Paul. He says, avoid the irreverent babble and the contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. He kind of puts knowledge in air quotes. It's fake knowledge. It's not real knowledge. It's, it's empty, empty philosophy and, and, um, and discussion that centers around speculations and and um, again, just taking the focus off what needs to be centered. But he says, look at what he says in verse 21. He says, by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. 
Again, this is not just a hobby horse for Paul, something that he's got, you know, a little, uh, um, you know, bee in his bonnet about. But he, he says, like, listen, if you go down these paths of not keeping the main thing, the main thing, he said, some people have swerved from the faith. Like, if you keep chasing these paths of senseless chatter and useless vain babblings, he said, they will take you away from the faith. It's a serious matter that Paul brings up. He wants them to avoid the nonsense, the pseudo-intellectual arguments of those who merely wanted to attack Scripture. Such talk, 2 Timothy 2.17 says, will spread like gangrene, like an infection. Avoid the nonsense. And then finally, he says, to rest in grace. Paul always closes his letters with a benediction, and, and they're very beautiful. And they, I think, to a T, every one of them bring up grace. And this one is one of his shortest ones. But he points them back to what must be the center of our lives day in and day out. He says, grace be with you. <laughs> what precious words. The word you there is in the plural in the Greek. So he's saying, grace be with all of you. He's, he's speaking to the whole church. This letter was to be read to the church. He's not just speaking to Timothy. He's speaking to everybody, and he's speaking to us. Paul has given a lot of really difficult commands in this book, some serious exhortations. I just have to imagine as Timothy's reading this letter, he's probably encouraged, he's probably challenged, but maybe there's a weight building up on his shoulders, and he's thinking, there's a lot here. Holy cow. You talk to me about leadership and a ton about false teachers and about how to address even the way that, that young women are dressing in my church. And you're talking to me about slaves and widows and godliness and purity. And holy cow, there's a lot here. I can't do that. And Paul points him back to what you and I need to be reminded of each and every day, the treasures, the riches of God's grace. Because Timothy would have been right in saying, I can't do this. You and I are right to read these verses and say, holy cow, I, I, I can't manage that. You're right. Oh, how we need to be reminded of grace every day. We need to be reminded of the saving grace that we have in Jesus Christ and the blessings that come through trusting him. Ephesians 1, 3, I'm just reading it with my family this week. We're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. That's, that's unbelievable. Unbelievable. We could take the rest of eternity to med meditate on Ephesians 1, 3. And I don't think ever fully come to a depth of understanding of what it means to be blessed with every spiritual blessing. We need to take time to meditate on God's saving grace. But we also need to take time to reflect on God's daily just sustaining grace. Because God has promised that he is never going to call us to something that he's not going to provide the grace for. When he told the Apostle Paul, who was struggling with some kind of physical infirmity, he says, my grace is sufficient for you. He's talking to you and me too. When we're struggling with whatever it is, and we just feel like it's too much, like we can't keep going, like it weighs us down, whether it's emotional pain it's the stresses of work, struggling to get along with that person that you, you just can't seem to love, dealing with health battles. And we cry out and say, God, I just 
can't do it. And he speaks to us the same words he spoke to Paul. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. For when I am weak, that's when he is strong. His grace shines through when I, when I can't do it. The reality is, I, I know many of you, and many of you are very tough people. Many of you are very, very strong people. You, you could buck up and, and endure a lot without Jesus. You can get through a lot of trials by yourself. I'm fine, thank you very much. I've got this. I can do this. Through sheer force of will and, and discipline and stick-to-itiveness and thick-skinnedness and all that stuff. The quicker you and I learn that those resources don't get us very far and eventually will run out, the, the, the happier you'll be the easier your lessons will be. Because we cast ourselves upon God and we say, I, I can't do this. I don't, I don't know how to parent. I don't, I don't know how to share my faith courageously at work. I, I, I can't endure one more day of this pain. And God speaks to us in those moments and says, I've got grace for that. Grace is the unmerited, unearned favor of God. It's not something we've worked for and have stored, we're storing it up for a rainy day. It's, here you go. You're, you're battling this sickness and I've chosen not to heal you yet. Here's grace today. You, you're struggling with your finances and you haven't seen a way out yet. Here's grace for today. You're hurting from this loss. And it doesn't seem to be going away. Here's grace for today. Paul speaks to Timothy the same words that we're to hear. Grace be with you. There's a verse in Hebrews 13 that I love. If you've never underlined this in your Bible... Do it, highlight it, underline it. He says, don't be led away by diverse and strange teachings. He says, for it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. What a precious line. It's good for you and I to have our hearts strengthened by grace. It's not, it's not shopping. It's not uh, going out and buying bigger and better something. It's not eating more food. It's not sleeping in or drowning your sorrow out in the bottle. Those aren't the things that will strengthen your heart. Not even reading self-help books or watching TED Talks on YouTube. Those will not strengthen our hearts the way that grace will. By turning back to the grace of God, day in and day out, reminding that his unmerited favor, his loving kindness, his steadfast loving kindness is coming at us like a hurricane, day in and day out. He pursues us with that grace that's undeserved. That's what's going to sustain us when life doesn't make sense. That's what's going to sustain us when we're trying to pursue a life of holiness, but we take 
one step forward and two steps back. That's what's going to sustain us when we're trying to be obedient to the commands that we've seen throughout this book. It's the grace of God. It is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. John Stott said at the end of his commentary on 1 Timothy, he says, they would not be able in their own strength to reject error and to fight for truth, to run from evil and pursue goodness, to renounce covetousness and cultivate contentment and generosity. In, in these Christian responsibilities, they would not be able to remain faithful to the end. Only divine grace could keep them. You and I need grace each and every day so that we can guard the good deposit that's been entrusted to us, the gospel. And I don't know what that's going to look like. Guarding the deposit, at the very least, means knowing the truth, believing the truth, and sharing the truth, and being faithful and keeping the gospel pure. But it may mean more than that. God may call us to sacrifice God may call us to persecution by, because we have chosen to guard the deposit faithfully. This week I was reminded of the story of Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. Scott Hubbard summarizes and tells us that for those familiar with the English Reformation, the name Latimer sounds incomplete on its own. It demands a Ridley. Bishops Hugh Latimer and, and Nicholas Rid, Ridley are fastened together in history primarily because they were fastened together to the same stake on October 16th, 1555, on the north side of Oxford. But Latimer and Ridley share more than a martyrdom. The bishops also join each other on the list of England's most influential reformers, men and women whose allegiance to Scripture and the glory of Christ transformed England into a lighthouse of the gospel. Both Latimer and Ridley lived during the reigns of four English monarchs, Henry uh, VII, Henry VIII, the one with all the wives and the super annoying song, Edward VI, and Mary I, uh, we, we know her as Bloody Mary. Both these men uh, witnessed the Reformation's tug and pull under Henry VIII's tentative acceptance of the Reformation, uh, under uh, Edward VI's warm embrace of the Reformation, and then Mary I's violent resistance to reform doctrine. But they were anything but casual observers. Latimer was born around 1485, and he spent the first 30 years of his life as a zealous Catholic, or in his words, an obstinate papist. He said, I was, I was as obstinate as anyone in England, in so much that when uh, I got my divinity degree, my whole oration was set against the Reformation. He had, he had been completely against what God was doing through the gospel going forth. And um, soon his anti-reformation, or uh, soon after he gave this uh, defense of his oration, uh, a young Cambridge pastor named Thomas Bilney approached him with a request. He asked Hugh Latimer if he would sit down and be willing to uh, listen to Bilney share about his faith. And so Latimer agreed. Bilney began to speak and he said, Latimer, in his own words, he said, that from that day on, I began to smell the word of God. The, the aroma of the gospel began to penetrate his heart. And so he began to be as adamant uh, for, for the reformation and for the gospel and faith alone through Christ alone as he had been in his former ministry. And at times, he enjoyed Henry's 
favor, and other times he feared for his persecution, but he preached the gospel faithfully. And after um, probably the most fruitful years of his ministry came under Edward VI, short reign from 1547 to 1553. But despite his age, Latimer assisted Archbishop Cranberry, uh, the Archbishop of Cranberry, Thomas Cranmer, in reforming the English church. He also preached like a man who was on fire. He loved the Lord, and he couldn't stop proclaiming the gospel of his Savior. According to J.C. Ryle, not one of the reformers probably sowed the seeds of the Protestant doctrine so widely and effectually among the middle and lower classes as Latimer. But then, in 1553, Queen Mary came to power, and Latimer was sent to a cell in the Tower of London. Ridley was nearly 20 years younger. He was born around 1502 near the border of Scotland. And throughout the next five decades would become one of England's sharpest intellects. He even went so far, listen to this, he even went so far as to memorize all of the New Testament epistles in Greek. And memorized. Uh, began to, uh, he got saved somewhere along the way, we're not sure when. Um, and became a Protestant preacher. Um, in 1534, he signed a decree against the Pope's supremacy and accepted a post as chaplain to Bishop, Archbishop Cramner three years later. As he preached, as he served, his influence began to spread. His scholarly abilities launched him from one prestigious post to the next, even under Henry VIII's capricious reign. From Canterbury to Westminster to Soham to Rochester to London, Ridley studied, preached, and once Edward VI took the throne, he threw himself into Cramner's reform. Unfortunately, that's when Queen Mary came to power, and Ridley joined Latimer in the tower. And so it was on October 16, 1555, after spending 18 months in a Tower of London cell, Latimer and Ridley met at an Oxford stake. With Latimer in a frock and cap and Ridley in his own bishop's gown, the two men talked and prayed together before they were tied by their executioner to the wood that had been gathered around. Ridley was the first to strengthen his friend. Be of good heart, brother, for God will either assuage the fury of the flame or else strengthen us to abide it. And as the bundle of sticks caught fire beneath them, Latimer had his turn. In the words that have been captured by so many pens down through the ages, he raised his voice so Ridley could hear. He cried, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. And his words prove prophetic. Three years later, Mary I died and passed the kingdom to her half-sister Elizabeth, a Protestant queen. And Latimer and Ridley's candle burst into a torch, and the gospel spread because they guarded the deposit that had been entrusted to them no matter what they were called to. At the end of his life, the Apostle Paul wrote, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race I have kept the faith. May our words be the same. We've been entrusted with the gospel. May we hold it close to keep it pure, but may we hold it forth so that others may know. 
No matter what comes, let us guard the deposit. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we've seen and heard challenges and reminders to be faithful, to endure, to fight, and to at times flee in this gospel. Lord, you've called us to to faithfully guard this good deposit, the message that Jesus Christ came to save sinners, the message that through faith alone, others too can know him. May we hold that forth, but may we keep it pure, free from alterations and changes. And Lord, we're so grateful for your grace that sustains us. As we go forth and we we struggle to have the courage to speak up and battle with as we battle with sin and whatever else falls into our path, we're reminded that there's grace. Lord, thank you that we're not on our own. We don't have to figure this out on our own. We're empowered by your spirit. And we're gifted with the riches of your favor so that we might guard the deposit, avoid the foolishness, and always, always be strengthened by grace. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.